Immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the Creator which distinguishes Him from all His creatures. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in His being, attributes, or determinations. Because God has no beginning and no ending, He can know no change. He is everlastingly the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What is the significance of the name I Am? How different are the First and New Covenants from each other, and were they each for different groups of people? If God is unchangeable, why are there several scriptures that either say, God repented, or it repented God? What is counterfeit surrender, and what effects can it have on us? How about the devil? Is he immutable? I want to know. I would like to welcome each and every one of you to this week's episode of The Doctrine of Christ. And you know why? Because whether you know it or not, the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. Brother Jimmy, great to be here for another episode. Amen. Amen. It's been a hot week. It's a hot one. I bet this episode is going to be hot too, isn't it? We're going to have a little spiritual temperature here. All right. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just great to know Jesus. It's great to serve the Lord. And um, this is going to be a great study on the attribute of immutability. And that is a $50 word that means God doesn't change. And that's good news, God, isn't it? That is good news. It really, really is. And let's start with a basic definition. This is from A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. And he says this, to say that God is immutable, is to say that he never differs from himself. The concept of a growing or developing God is not found in the scriptures. It seems to me impossible to think of God as varying from himself in any way. God cannot change for the better since he is perfectly holy. He has never been less than holy. He has never been less holy than he is now, and he can never be holier than he is and has always been. Neither can God change for the worst. Any deterioration within the unspeakable holy nature of God is impossible. Doesn't change. Always the same. And this sets the true God, the living God, apart from the pagan gods that copulate with human women and get all kinds of sin and debauchery and all of the things they do. He is the never-changing, immutable God. And this is expressed in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And in the very call and the commission 
and the revelation unto Moses, the great lawgiver. He revealed to himself as the I am, and that name in itself means immutability. This is what Matthew Poole had to say about this text. He said, eternity and unchangeableness of his being, whereas all other beings once were, and if he please, they shall be no more. And all their being was derived from him and wholly depends upon him. The sense is, I am the same that ever I was, the same who made the promises to Abraham and have now come to perform them. Because that tense is in the use of the Hebrew tongue, and it comprehends all times, past, present, and to come, to signify that all times are alike to God, and all are present to him. He doesn't need a time machine. All time is the same to him. He doesn't change. This is going to stretch our little mind out a little bit. Uh, As if none of these others have. Yeah. (laughs) And to meditate on God and to meditate upon his attributes, this is such a blessing. If people would, would just do that and you get to know the Lord, you get that's the way we know the Lord. By studying what he says about himself. I, I've got a, a an elderly gentleman friend that has never been in church, never has known anything about God. And, and, you know, I introduce him to the DOC and, and he just loves it. And, you know, he's believes Christ is his savior, but he doesn't know anything. And I've, I've told him, start watching season six from episode one, because we're, we're letting you know who God is every episode, you know, all these different attributes. So that'd be a good thing for anybody to do. If you have friends that don't know anything about the Bible or anything about God, or think God is this certain God from the old Testament, that's different from the God in the new Testament, have them start watching each of these episodes. It'll help. Yeah. And if you would just go out and do a man on the street thing and say, well, what is God like? And if you do that, that with preachers, you know, you'd get so many different answers with you. If I wasn't so, uh, so much of an introvert, I, I, I would do that because it would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting at, uh, in a parking lot of a super church as a mega church is letting out. Get people right as they're coming out of church. Yeah. Yeah. I got one right up the street. I might just do it. Now, I'd be interested. I'd be, uh, I'd buy a ticket for that. Let me tell you. They'd have now, me escorted off there pretty quick, I bet. They probably would. Now, this is what Stephen Sharnock says. He says, if his essence were mutable, God would not truly be. And if we, and this is so important as we understand God's moral law and how God's moral law doesn't change. Now, we understand that, and it was always God's plan from the very first that Christ would be the Messiah to die for the sins of the world. That Levitical system was never intended to be permanent. And this in itself shows us that God has a plan and he doesn't change. So you see, it's one thing to say, well, that was always intended that the Levitical system would give way to the sacrifice of Christ. But if we could show God's moral nature changing, like it's wrong to lie, kill, steal, incest, whatever, we would prove him not to be God. 
and any entity that does not line up with the attributes of God, you know it's not God. So if we could show, and this literally is what's being preached from the pulpits uh, routinely, that God's moral law is gone. It's changed. It was right then. It's not right now. And literally, they're preaching another God because God cannot change. I mean, think about that, that scripture, I am the Lord, I change not. What, what yeah. does that mean if it doesn't mean exactly what it says? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like Brother Spurgeon, uh, when he, someone asked him a question about the Scripture, what does that mean? He says, that Scripture means just what it says, yours truly, Charles Spurgeon. You know, and that's where we're at. When we, when we see these statements of Scripture, and we're going to look at Malachi 6 through 6 in just a moment, that totally go against what we're hearing taught in the most popular theologies. I am the Lord, I change not. Well, we have the changing God preached. So it's preaching another God. You know, they have another God, they have another Christ. That's how serious it is. And is that a bold statement? Yes, it is. But it's just what Paul said. He says that the apostasy would come before Christ's return and we're in it. The great falling away, Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? And there will be the remnant, but it will not be large. It will be the few that will go through that straight and narrow gate. But there is big trouble here in River City. I guarantee you, uh, there's big trouble. Uh, it, it's deep and serious trouble. It calls for total repentance and coming back to the God of the Bible, nothing less than that, that sent his son. And um, it, 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 Brother Sharnock goes on, it could not be truly said by himself, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. If he were such a thing or being at this time and a different being, at another time, whatsoever is changed properly is not, because it doth not remain to be what it was. But if God were changed, it could not be said of him that he is, but it might also be said of him that he is not, or if he were changeable or could be changed, it might be said of him he is, but he will not be what he is, or he may not be what he is, but there will be or may be some difference in his being. And so God would not be the I am that I am. For though he would not cease utterly to be, yet he would cease to be what he was before. I am that I am, the God that doesn't change, that cannot change. And I I don't believe that this is the God that's being preached anymore. And I don't believe that the real son of God is the one that is usually preached. And that's I don't say that with any joy or any angst in my heart. But I think when you really meditate on the immutability of God, that's what we hear more. Instead of the immutability of God, we hear how God has changed and no longer makes requirements. Well, and people. they blame Jesus for it. <laughs> yeah. They blame the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, for changing God, who, who it's very twisted. What, what's that yeah. called? Circular logic or something like yeah. that? I, don't I know. and my Father are one. I came to do the works of the Father, the will of the Father. My words are not my own. So, yeah, Jesus is different than the Father. It's lunacy. It's heresy. And it's so unscriptural. And that's why it 
each and every one of these attributes, if we get a hold of them, it will, you'll never be fooled uh, by these again. If we can understand and just believe he is the I am that I am and the same I am that revealed himself to Moses, the lawgiver is the same. I am that sent his son to reveal himself unto us. It is just absolutely great. And in John chapter eight and verse 58, Jesus said this, Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says that he is the I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of the life. I am the I am the bread of the world. Uh, the, no, the living bread, uh, the way, the truth, and the life. We can go on and on and on. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Jesus was the great I am in the flesh. The Father sent him, and he sent him to show us what the Father was like. And oh my goodness, Jesus is unchangeable. You see, Jesus is the immutable God, and we're going to talk about the immutability of God in the incarnation. But the immutable Father sent the immutable Son, and they are identical. So there you go. And this is such simple, powerful truth that if we will just believe it and let it be a part of us, this alone would keep us from being able to go along with what we're being told in the mass of the American evangelical mess. Mm. But God is so good. Now, in the text that you alluded to earlier, Malachi 3 and 6, and this is one of the blessed text on the immutability of God. It's all over Bibles. You know, there's a lot so, of great scriptures in Malachi. Oh, yeah. My goodness. There sure is. Of course, they're all good, right? They are. They're all pretty good. Malachi 3 and 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And in... um Reform Systematic Theology, I'm going to refer to this book three times tonight, uh, Joel Beek and Paul Smalley, and this book has a real great comment on this text, uh, and it says this on page 689. Is that a one-volume book, or is that— It's a, it's a three. Three? It's three volumes. And it's the obvious, I mean, we could know this just from reading the text, Malachi 3.6 links God's immutability to his name. I am the Lord. I change not. The Lord revealed his name to Moses as I am, which we read in Exodus 3.14. The immutability of God is all over the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. This is big stuff, and you don't want to get this wrong. The I am sent his son that's one with him. I am, I am, I am the way, the truth, and life. This is so all-encompassing of the revelation about God himself that to, to miss this, you, you miss who God is because it's it's just so it's just so important. You miss it, 
You've just got the wrong God. And what does it mean to us? You know, what does it mean to us? And boy, it means a lot. And let's let's go to the 102nd Psalm. And before we read a couple verses from this psalm, I want us to read the heading to this psalm. In Psalm 102, and that little New Testament doesn't have that in there. So I'm going to have to go to... I have it. Okay, we'll go ahead. I'm going to read just that heading at the top? Yeah, read the heading at the top. Okay, my Bible says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? That's it. And that was actually, that superscription is actually a part of the text. Okay. It is the prayer of the the afflicted when they're overwhelmed. Now, we've all been there and done that. We've been to the place where we're overwhelmed, where it seems like life just has too much of us. I mean, it's it's not hard to, to get yourself in that spot right now if you're not careful. And right now, many people are being overwhelmed. People are getting desperate. And the financial pinch is getting real. We're all feeling it, and it's going to get worse. And this is so good to know at times like this that God doesn't change. Now, this whole text in this psalm, it's comfort to those that are overwhelmed on the foundation of God's immutability. That's the whole foundation of this psalm. Listen to this text. In verse 17, it says, He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Now, when you're destitute, you ain't got anything. You know, you run out of everything. You're destitute. That means... You don't have any resources, worldly speaking, to where you can do anything for yourself. But it says he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Why? Look at verse 25. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, All of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years have no end. And here the attribute of eternity comes into conjunction with the attribute of immutability. God doesn't change. When this psalm was written before Christ, that he will not despise the prayer of the destitute, nothing has changed since then. God is the same. That will never change. And the the wonderful truth, always, when you're destitute, when when you're overwhelmed by life's toils and life's problems, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. There will never be a time when that's not true. He always cares in times of death, 
And we all have hard things we have to go through, losing loved ones, all of the things. And there'll never be a time when that unchanging God will not hear our prayer and will not console us with the compassion of his mighty, mighty workings. And First John 1, 9, think about the last time you had to pray this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jonathan Fletcher, who John Wesley said, he traveled thousands of miles with John Wesley through all kinds of difficult situations. And John Wesley said he never heard Jonathan Fletcher speak an improper word. Now, that's that's really something to say, isn't it? And Jonathan Fletcher, in his writings, he said, every day I pray, uh, forgive us in the Lord's Prayer. For, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those, or, excuse, or sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. And every day we can pray 1 John 1, 9. And in 1 John 1, 9, it's there now. It's there next week. It'll be there a year from now. It'll be there an hour before you die. That is the promise of the unchanging God. If we'll just confess, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. What a promise. And this is based upon the unchangeable immutability of God. Some might ask, is this meaning like public confession, like James talks about? Or is this scripture mostly speaking of just confessing your sins to God? Yeah, confessing your sins to God. Confessing um, your sins to the priest won't help, (laughs) but confessing them to the Lord will do great wonders. And by the way, when we confess our sins, we're supposed to confess our own sins. We're not supposed to confess other people's sins. A lot of people That's called gossip, isn't it? That yeah, that's what that's (laughs) called. But yeah, we just can and you see, this is the great truth that we have that we have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ that he never changes. And there's that faithfulness of the atonement at the right hand of the Father that's ours by faith. That's that covenant relationship that we have. I have another song, if I ever get it finished, called Jesus, You're the Same. And it's, this, this episode is going to help me finish the lyrics. Thank you. <laughs> you know, what I was saying, thinking is that you could write a song about each and every one of God's attributes. Every, every one of them. Every one of them. Yeah, Jesus, you're the same. And speaking of that, let's see how good this fits in. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus never changes, and he is one with the Father. So if Jesus is the same now as he was when he walked the earth, we should obey him now, just like his disciples did when they were on the earth. I mean, that's not a, I mean, that's an obvious truth that, uh, how, I mean, how can people get things so wrong? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the Holy, he sent his Holy Spirit back to us to live, to indwell with us, right? He sure did. So he is with us on the earth, just as he was 
Yeah, and I can't imagine the the disciples he was with on a daily basis doing some of the things I've done in my past <laughs> while claiming to be a follower of Christ. Yeah. You know? We just don't but, think about him being with us. Yeah. But he is. He is. And and as you alluded to, it is through the Holy Spirit that he continues to be with us. Another comforter, allos, another of the same kind. And we could just go on with the Holy Ghost that as Christ is one with the Father, so the Holy Ghost is one with Christ and the Father. Well, David, I got a question for you. This is a little bit off of our topic, but this I've been seeing this a lot lately. And I don't know if you can just give a quick little answer to this. I've been seeing a lot of videos about Holy Spirit being a woman. And they say, and then one of their excuses is, well, when you look at the Hebrew, it's in the feminine sense. But but in in Hebrew or Greek, when it says a word is in feminine or uh, masculine, that's not speaking of actual male and female, is it? It's the way the word is used in sentence yeah. structure, right? Okay, I literally just spent five minutes on the internet, and I went, and here's what I searched for the first time. If a Hebrew word is in the feminine gender, does that make it female? So I clicked on the very first one here, and uh, just reading. Unlike English, Hebrew belongs to a group of languages that has grammatical gender. And you can read this for yourself and just keep going through. There's just a lot of stuff here. Feminine nouns end with these letters here, typically. But sometimes they don't. Uh, but look, here's, here's some, these are feminine nouns. Goat, country, road, you know, all, all these things. Shoe. These are all feminine nouns, but that doesn't make these females. So then I, I, I typed in, how about a list of feminine nouns in Hebrew? Clicked on the very first one again, and here's this. Here's a list of, of uh, see, this even shows you that the same word can have a male or a female way that it would be written, if I'm reading this right. But here's what I did. Here's what I think I can read right. This says right here, the first group is feminine nouns that end with other letters other than these. Unfortunately, there's no way to recognize them as feminine without memorizing them. Here's a list of some of those exceptions. All right, so animals. Here, frog. That That's a feminine noun. Again, we see goat or bird. Does that make these females? No, it doesn't. How about your... Uh, your uh, face, your eye. What about a man's face or eye? Does that are these still? Are, does that mean they're they're females? No, it doesn't. So, I just wanted to show that to you. I'll put all these links in the in the uh, video itself, so you can do some further researching. And if you find something out different that maybe I'm wrong about, uh, please let me know because you know how I feel about everything. I want to know. Many times it is not, and the greatest. Uh, and the fact that it appears feminine in the Hebrew has no implication all that God is a woman. And I could bring you out a stack of the very best of the Hebrew scholars that are real scholars, not some guy on YouTube that lives in his mother's basement, but real scholars, you know, and 
that's just rank capacity. And what that is, that's Luciferianism. And in Luciferianism, they believe that God in the beginning was androgynous. And that when man fell, he became male and female. Androgynous good, male and female bad. So now to get back to the image of God, the androgynous, transgender, every kind of sexual confusion in the world, they believe that's returning to the image of God. And this is promoted uh, a lot of people in the Hebrew root movement. They promote this. It's rank demonic blasphemy. Well, I've uh, seen one of these one of these uh, people were reading from the Hallelujah scriptures. Yeah. And all through the Nagamati codices, it talks about the mother, father, God. It's just demonic rank blasphemy. It's Gnosticism. It's Kabbalah. And this is popular among the Hebrew movement. We also see it coming through, like on TBN, The Shack, that movie, The Shack. Yeah, where, that's what they uh, were saying, too, wasn't it? Oh, exactly. It's the same, same theology. It's the Gnostic, Kabbalistic poison. And it's rank blasphemy. I mean, if their people have an ounce of fear of God in their hearts, and here again, if people would just believe the doctrine of Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit is called he multiple times by Christ, and in a way that means something, you know, and that means something there when he said it. So this is just demonic, Gnostic, Kabbalistic confusion. We have spoke out against this so much. We have broken ties with anyone that believes this in any way. I mean, this is just sickening, disgusting, apostate garbage. I can't, I don't have adjectives to express how rank and vile this is. How do you anybody, really feel? Anybody that believes this run for, from them as fast as are, little feet can take you. Are they approaching um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Yes. Have yes. they yet, or just approaching it? Well, that'll be his call, but I tell you what, they're going to find out what I tell them is uh, one day you're going to stand before God. When he does, he ain't going to have a skirt on. You know, he's not like the admiral. You know, the admiral, now the admiral wears a skirt, but God does not. Mm. And that is is just a part of this demonic spirit of the age and this sexual confusion. You know, this whole transgender thing, they want to do the, the transgender change on God to turn him into a woman. It's that same demonic transgender spirit. It's just absolutely horrific. Um, well, thank you. I didn't mean to get you too off far off base, but I've just been seeing that a lot. So thank you for uh, it is. A well, quick yeah. And I have we have been so outspoken against this in the past, and I love every opportunity. It needs to be said and said again, because this is out there. It's that old Gnostic Kabbalistic heresy, and it just keeps coming. And it's that demonic spirit of the age that we just rebuke in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The unchangeable Jesus. Uh <laughs> I tell you, it, it's disgusting. But what isn't disgusting is what John Owen said about Hebrews 13, 8. He said this, where the person of Christ is intended, there the divine nature is always included, for Christ is God and man in one person. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, 
but the divine essence, we talked about that in the attribute of God as a spirit, the divine essence in Christ never changed. He never ceased to be deity. He never ceased to be the immutable, unchanging God. So nothing changed in Christ. He, he was in, in a body, but that did not mean that his deity and his essence was any less changeable or immutable. It was impossible for him to do anything but to do and say what the Father told him to do. Brother Owen also said, Jesus Christ from the beginning of the world was the object of the faith of the church. That is from the giving of the first promise. The very first promise about the the seed of the woman bruising the head of the, the head of the serpent. Look to Christ. Every prophecy ever since they, uh, the father slew the animal to clothe Adam and Eve, the wages of sin is death. What you did caused an innocent animal to suffer. That pointed to Christ. It's not one religion in the old, one in the new. People were saved by grace through faith in the old covenant. Love fulfilled the law in the old covenant. The same now. The Bible, Paul said, the gospel was preached a four time to Abraham, one plan of salvation, one Israel of God. It wasn't the Israel of God then, the church now. There is no church except the ecclesia, the gathering together of the Israel of God. One body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. There's only one body. There's not two. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. There's one sheepfold. There's not two. It's the Israel of God. And what about that'll the two, never what about the two? What about the two vines being grafted together? What? Oh, I love that. Get me going on Romans 11. And we are grafted in. And in Romans 11, it says that the root is holy. Now, all of those boys and girls on the day of Pentecost, they were Jewish boys and girls. They were the remnant of Israel. Now, were we grafted in to believing Israel and that holy root, or were we grafted in to a fleshly genetic Christ-rejecting Israel? And that's really a no-brainer, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and that's what it says. And you see, we're still the Israel of God. We're grafted in by faith. And it says that uh, if we don't abide in faith, we can be grafted right out. You see, it's the Israel of God. And we're grafted into believing Israel. You see, the first covenant was with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's not an old covenant with Israel, a new covenant with the church. That is just such a porky. There's no text for that, none at all. But the Bible says what it says, and it's exciting to know that God doesn't change. God doesn't change. And this is all just basic understanding, and it, it just shows us when we really meditate and understand the immutability of God, that so many of the doctrines that are so popular, they're preaching a changing God. They're not preaching the immutable God, but a changing one. Hmm. You about to start preaching. I, I tell you what, it's uh, it's enough. You know, this message, uh, it needs to be shouted from the rooftops. I still, have, I still haven't forgotten seeing you 
seen you preaching two weeks ago. <laughs> First time for me. Well, I tell you what, we're going to be doing some more of that. And, uh, well, I'm not going to make any announcements yet, but we're going to have some uh, stuff coming up here at the barn. We're going to be right. talking about more. We haven't announced anything yet, but there's some plans in the working. All right. You almost heard it first right here. You almost, well, we will hear it <laughs> first soon um, when we get to the announcing place. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Now, we've read this text a lot. and We oh, can't yeah. too much. And it's just, you know, what does this text mean? It means just what it says. That's what it means. I am the Lord, I change not. When And this is the problem, that we cannot believe the clear statements of Christ and fit in with the modern apostate church. You know, the truth doesn't fit well with the whore of Babylon. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would say probably the Sabbath that made the top 10, didn't it? I remember when we did the Ten Commandments. That made the list. I think it was right up there at number four. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus was real clear. If you, you know, you say it's okay to break God's commandments, you're going to be the least in the kingdom. Well, I think they're in a lot of trouble here. Because, I mean, that's that, this is just another thing that's routinely taught that is so, I'm going to say it, it is soaked with the spirit of antichrist it's not just a little bit off it's way off you know i mean it's way off you ain't got the right god you ain't got the right jesus you know that, get that and go from there you know they say that word fulfill means completed it it's over we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to keep it he keeps it for us yeah when it was over god changed and that's gone there you go there you go all right now Let's talk about something else that's used um, by the critics of God. You know, God has a lot of critics, you know, and um, the word apologetics, it from the Greek apologia, it means that we give an orderly defense of the truth of God, and that's good to do. That's what teachers should do. We're not we, apologizing for it. No, we are giving a defense of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can take care of himself, but so that there's so, and there's so much craziness, you know, and that's what it's like. It's a, it's about, it's like a bunch of little punks that get on the internet. There's some dysfunctional little dweeb in their mom's basement and they spout this stuff off. And I, I tell you what, it's disgusting. And th this is just everywhere. And people, th the problem is people give ear to it. You know, be careful how you hear Jesus said, but in Genesis chapter six and verse six, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth and it grieved him at his heart. See, gotcha. he changed. There you go. Gotcha. You see, that's a lie. 
Now, we really we want to spend just a little bit of time to understand this. And this is such a blessing, as all God's word is. Um, I want to go back to the Reformed Systematic Theology by Brother Beek. And uh, we'll read just a little bit here on page 712 of volume one. We learn that God repents or relents in the sense that his actions toward people change. Their sins bring down his wrathful judgment, even though he has previously spoken blessings over them. God's relationships with his creatures do change as their state conditions and status before him fluctuate. Therefore, when we say thou art the same, Psalm 102, 27, we do not mean that God has the same attitude toward all people, events, and actions. His unchangeable nature makes it necessary that God should have different attitudes toward situations based upon whether they please him by righteousness or displease him by sin. Now, if we would quit serving the Lord and we would go out and act goofy and stick marbles up our nose, God's attitude toward us would change. He, Instead of blessing us, he would have to judge us and correct us. Now, God didn't change. We changed. And this is always the meaning when repent is put toward the Father, toward God, that he is changing his actions because of a change in the person, not because of a change in him. Now, we have a great example of this in the 15th chapter of First Samuel, and it's used in both ways within one chapter, and this will show us how to see this. And now what's happened in the greasy get grace movement, and when the Bible talks about man repenting, it means not only a change of your mind, but a change of your actions. And now what is taught by uh, Charles Ryrie, Charles Stanley, the boys from Dallas Theological, that matano means just to change your mind about God. If you just intellectually say Jesus is Lord and you believe he is Lord, whether you change your ways or not, that's what salvation is. That is not what salvation is. And they just play all kinds of games with that. Now, 1 Samuel 15, 11, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me as he hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now, it wasn't God that changed. He changed his way of dealing with Saul because Saul changed. Saul became wicked, and God had to change the way he dealt with Saul. His nature and attributes did not change. It is because God has immutable attributes that he could not ignore Saul's sin. Hmm. And to just to make sure that it's plain to everybody in verse 29 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, and also the strength of Israel 
will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Always, God only repents in changing his dealings toward us when we change. His attributes never change. He is not a man. He is incapable of change. If he was capable of changing, he would not be God. And this is such a this is such a foundational truth in the very name that God revealed himself unto the great lawgiver. I am that I am. So now we're told, well, the Lord revealed himself unto Moses as the unchangeable God, and the law revealed to him, oh, we're sorry that's changed. You see, it's just it's just such nonsense that, you know, it's, it's even a shame that we have to make a point of it. These things are so clear in the word of God that but we have to because people are being deceived by the millions by these lies. And these are not just little inconsequential lies. We're talking about rejecting the true God and rejecting the true son of God. And it's a blessing to me. We can read men and women that knew the true God from the first century, from the Puritans, and the same blessings and the joy and the fire in their soul is the same blessings from God we can have right now, because God never changes. In Jeremiah 18 and 8, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. If, in verse 10, if it do evil in my sight that obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And people think that, you know, God bless America. God loves America. Oh, boy. And he does love America, but he can't bless it because, um, and just obviously well, if, so. If you do evil uh, in my sight. Yeah. I think my, America's guilty of that. My goodness. If ever there was a nation of that just defied God. And not only do we defy God, but we're seeing the hatred against Bible Christians really manifest, and that's going to escalate so strong. Has this country taken up the mantle of, uh, it was the Babylon king, the first one? Why am I drawing a blank on that? Nimrod. Yeah, Nimrod. <laughs> yeah. Have they taken up Nimrod's mantle? Yeah. They are wanting to fulfill uh, and go beyond even what Nimrod did. Absolutely. Nimrod wanted that new world order. And, uh, you know, the Freemasons today, they believe they can put the capstone on that. Yeah. And and they will for a while. But it's not going to be what they thought. You know, it's not going to be the joy that uh, they think it's going to be. Mm-mm. You know, uh, oh, my goodness. Jose it's like we Cap- said last week. When we were talking about the all-powerful God, to have the all-powerful God against you, what a thought. Yeah, and I love this scripture 
in Hosea 11 and 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Jeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Now, this text shows us the heart of God as judgment and correction is applied to Ephraim. And there's another text where the Lord gets to the point where he says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. And at this place, we see uh, it is just like a father. When we spank our children, we don't get joy out of hearing the little little folks cry, but it has to be done. Mm -hmm. And this shows the heart of the father as he is going to be forced to bring correction against Ephraim, but his heart is turned within him. My repentings are kindled together. Now, that word kindle is just like we start a fire out in the woods. We get a little something from here. We get a little dried leaves and sticks, and we put it together. We're getting stuff from different places. We put it together, and we start a fire. Well, that's a perfect picture of God's attributes. Within the heart of God, we have justice. And within the heart of God, we have grace and mercy. And as the father was coming to the place where he was going to have to correct Ephraim, the text says, my heart is turned within me and my repentings are kindled together. And all that God was, his justice, his judgment was turning over with his grace and his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The father was looking for a way to where he could show mercy, but that mercy is kindled together and it was turning in the heart of God. And we see such a picture here of the father as, I mean, he's a real person. Uh, I mean, God's real and he has emotions and we're getting to know God here about what God is like. And this is such a a neat picture of um, the emotions that God feels and his compassion as he has to move toward judgment. Um, I have here um, the a Geneva Bible. This is the 1560 edition. I use it quite a bit because I kind of like the Puritans and like William Perkins, he died before the King James Bible was even translated, so he couldn't use it. And that was true of many of your, well, all of your early Puritans, they used the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible came about during the reign of Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII, I am. We remember that one. And Henry VIII, there was the historic split with Rome and all of that during the reign of Henry VIII. The Church of England started... And Henry had a daughter, called her Mary. She was known as Mary Tudor because of the Tudor bloodline. She was known as Mary, Queen of Scots, that murdered her sister, Lady Zane Grey. 
She was also known as Bloody Mary because during her reign, there was a horrific persecution and slaughter against the people of God and just Bible Christians. And during that time, uh, many believers had to flee. And one of those was a man by the name of John Fox. And he wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs about that persecution. And he did more than that, but he lived through uh, firsthand that persecution from Bloody Mary. And that is really what made the Puritans what they were. Because they knew that there was a price to serve God. It could be your life. It could be your home. It could be the life of your wives and wives and children. It was a re- real deal to stand up for Jesus. And the men and the women that came through uh, in, in the in the 1500s, they came through that persecution. They became the giants of the 17th century. And it was men like William Perkins that had that courageous real Holy Ghost boldness. The righteous are as bold as a lion, the book of Proverbs says, 28 and 1. So anyway, just a little context there. But I love, and the Geneva Bible, it was translated from the proper text. I love the way it says this, saying the same thing in a different way. It says, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as an Adma? How shall I Set thee as Zeboim, mine heart is turned within me, my repentings are rolled together. And it's spelt R-O-U-L-E-D, they're rolled together. And that's another word, that word kindle. You take, it's like you're taking all of God's attributes and they're just there. And all of his attributes are rolled together. And that's what this text says. I'm rolling this over. My grace and my mercy are rolling over with my judgment and my hatred of sin. And God's a real person. And when we study the attributes of God, we're getting to know what God is like. We know what he's going to think of uh of people that do this or people that do that. This is how we get to know God, by reading what God's word has to say about him and through studying Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate manifestation of God to us. I want to look at um, Adam Clark's comment on this. And boy, I love this. This is really good. Adam Clark said this comment on Hosea 11 and 8. Justice demands thy punishment. Mercy pleads for thy life. As thou changest, justice resolves to destroy or mercy to save. And that's exactly what we were talking about when we, when the Bible speaks of God repenting. He says, as thou changest. In other words, as each and every human being changes, justice resolves to destroy or mercy to save. My heart is oppressed and I am weary with repenting. And this just shows that God's the living God. He's real. And when we say God is unchangeable, that doesn't mean he's always going to have. And, you know, this God is love like there's an unchangeable, gushy love over everybody. God is unchanging. 
But in that unchanging God, we have to understand that rolled together in the heart of God are all of these attributes. And when we change, God repents and changes his attitude toward us. Now, this is something I really like. And this is something to think about right here. Brother Clark says, all this, though spoken after the manner of men, shows how merciful, compassionate, and loath to punish the God of heaven is. What sinner or saint upon earth has not been a subject of these gracious operations? In other words, there's been a time when the Father's been looking at us and his attributes of his heart have been rolling together. Well, am I going to have to correct little baby and little Jimmy, or am I going to, are they going to straighten up? You see, each and every one of us, God has looked upon us just like this text speaks of God looking upon Ephraim. Hmm. And it's our, and see, this is why our repentance is so important. If we repent and we change, then the unchangeable God because he is immutable, he will change in his dealings with us, you see. And that is so important to get right. So it's good when we repent. It's not necessarily good when he does. No. that Well, and sometimes he changes of the evil, you see. When people turn from evil to good, then he'll change the way he looks upon them, you see. So it can go both ways. But it's and not he, that he's changing. He is he's a he's going along with how how you're I don't know the right way to say it, but I think I understand it. How if you're if you're obeying him, then these he's got this kind of thing set up for you. But when you don't obey, then because of his stance on disobedience and sin and unrighteousness, this is now the course that you'll have to go down. Is that yeah. close? Yeah, well, God is immutable, and he is always has the attribute of love, mercy, but also of holiness and justice. So whenever we change to sin, then the justice of God has to roll to the front, if you will, mm-hmm. and God judges us. And whenever we turn from evil— to righteousness, then the attributes of God turn toward us with love and mercy. And God's attributes never change. We change. And when we change for the good, we can actually change the way the immutable, omnipotent God deals with us. (laughs) That's amazing. That is. That is just absolutely amazing. Now, let's talk about another think about another little thing here in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58. And this is another silly idea. It's just silly. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, the text says here, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, there's an idea that people want to put forth 
and a lot of this comes from stoicism, that God is just inactive. You know, God rested on the seventh day. He's just taking a nap somewhere. You know, he is just passive. And nothing could be farther from the truth. And um, I want to get a couple comments on this. I'll read from a Harvard textbook here. This book is called The Morrow of Theology. And this is by a Puritan by the name of William Ames. 1576 to 1633, and this was required reading and a textbook at Harvard University when it was founded. Okay. And this book, The Morrow of Theology, which is just straight up Puritan theology, it was tremendously influential in the early days of America, the pre-1776 America, when there was some good things going on. But this is what William Ames says. He says, thirdly and finally, the quality which is called passive is not in him. He is therefore immutable. Thou remainest, thou art the same, the glory of the incorruptible God. And this thing about passive, there's nothing about God that is any way passive, no way, no how. And when people, and you don't even, you just wonder how this even gets into people's mind about God being passive. But this so that, is something. So that won't be an episode of this this season, the passiveness of God? Well, I don't know if we'll do a whole show on it. It'd be good to talk a little bit about it right now. And um, this is a book that I like. Of course, I like a lot of them, but this is The War on the Saints by Jesse Penn Lewis. And it was written from uh, with Evan Roberts. She was one of the workers in the Welsh Revival when, I mean, amazing things. Um, Evan Roberts was a young man, didn't have a lot of book learning. He wasn't an eloquent reader. He wasn't a man of the Bible school but he was from the school of the Bible and God so touched him that he changed a nation. He just could preach the word of God and it ripped people's hearts out. It was just amazing the way God used. If you've never read any about the Welsh revival, um, it's really a, a bright spot and a good example of what God can do uh, when he moves. But anyway, from being in so many meetings, and seeing what did um, Mrs. Lewis wrote this book. Uh, and well, this is one of the conclusions she had. And there were people that manifested with devils. Uh, we've been having some of that. We've been having some devils manifest against us. Yeah. But this is what she wrote. This is on page 69. That believers, true, fully surrendered children of God can be deceived. And then up to the degree of deception, comma, possessed by deceiving spirits. Every thought suggested to the mind by wicked spirits and accepted is ground given to them. And every faculty unused invites their attempted use of it. And if we just think that for a moment. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
any unused part of that, <laughs> you're just tempting him to come in and take over that. She goes on to say, the primary cause of deception and possession in surrendered believers may be condensed into one word, passivity. One word, the number one doorway of deception of believers is passivity. That is a cessation of the active exercise of the will in control over spirit, soul, and body, or either, as it may be the case, it is practically a counterfeit of surrender to God. Now, in so many situations, I've seen this, where something needs to be done. I mean, there's a situation that calls on God's people to do something, and they will just say, I'll just do nothing. And I, I just surrendered. And all that is is counterfeit surrender. That is counterfeit surrender, and that is absolutely opening you up to deceiving spirits. This is so true. There is nothing that is a greater doorway for the devil into believers' lives than being passive. Well, that's what kind of what w w the shape this country's in, I think, is because of the passivity of Christians. We've just allowed things to happen yeah. and to become law and to become major social issues when it's completely against the Word of God. But we've been taught and brainwashed into believing that, well, we're not being very loving if we get on to people or if we make too big of a fuss about this or that. You know, what about the unconditional love of God? You know, they've, they've, they've made Christians scared to be dynamic. We're, we're passive. Yeah. And um, we're having abominations shoved down our throat. And we're being told, you're going to shut up. You're going to like it. And you're not only not going to say nothing about it, but you're going to smile and wave at me while I'm doing at it. You're going to give me that big grin. You know, when when we see the admiral on television in his skirt, you just smile because you speak out against the admiral. We'll get you. You know, I, this is what it is. It's just demonic intimidation. And that. And, you know, I just struggle for an adjective abomination. You know, it's abomination to God. It's nothing less than that. And God is going to judge this abominable nation because he is the immutable, unchangeable God. Well, I was pleasantly surprised by a story that came out a couple weeks ago about five baseball players in Major League Baseball because every team this month was putting certain patches on their uniforms and hats celebrating certain things. And, yeah. and there were five baseball players for this one team that says, we're not going to wear that. We're Christians, and that goes against our belief. We love everybody. You know, we want them to come to the ballpark, have a good time, whatever, but we're not going to promote what we stand against. Yeah. And you know what? Everybody just said, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like we think we if we they did it in a good uh, I mean a, in in a way that stood up for them what they really believe as Christians without you know all this stuff that people just were waiting for you to do so they can just attack you but mm -hmm. they did it right and and everybody just backed down and okay, they made a stand. 
we, I think we could make more stands than we do. And I think it would be okay, but yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be, some of the backlash wouldn't be what we think. Although I can't say that anymore. It, I've seen some gnashing of teeth in some videos lately. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. And it's, um, we're, we're headed for a very, very hot summer. Uh, it's going to be, uh, um, it's going to be, we're going to see the fangs of the evil one, uh, snarl at the people of God, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, I used to think when, when the scriptures talk about those people would be gnashing their teeth, I was like, well, that's just an idiom or that's just a, and then, but no, I've actually seen it now. There's people gnashing their teeth. Yeah. And in the book of Acts, um, when the, the Pharisees were stoning Stephen to death, yeah, they literally run up and bit him. I mean, it's one thing, it's one level. If you get mad at someone and call them a name, it's another level. If you get mad at someone and hit them and it's another level when you get so mad at someone, you run up and you bite them like an animal. That's demonic rage. That's demonic. Yeah. Yeah. That is just unmitigated demonic rage. And that's what we're seeing against Bible Christians. This is the same as was there in the reign of bloody Mary. And, uh, you know, we could say that also the devil's immutable. <laughs> the devil's always a liar. Uh, his tactics are always the same. And uh, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah. And uh, and the text in First Peter 5 and 8, where it says um, he goes about as a roaring lion seeking who may devour, that word literally means to drink the blood. Mm. And... He literally, he wants to fill, uh, he wants to bring back the martyrdom. This is what the Bible says will happen, that uh, it's coming back. It's already here in a lot of places. Uh, Day of Pentecost, there were 50 Christians in Nigeria that got killed inside the church. Shot. Yeah. So this is what we're headed for. the, The Israel of God, we know this and we understand it. And, um, you know, it's all right, because we know that God doesn't change. And just like in the 102nd Psalm, he will hear the prayer of the destitute. If we would become destitute and um, only have him, that's okay, because he's enough, because he is the omnipotent, immutable, unchanging God. Hmm. A text in John eight twenty four. I said, therefore, unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, this is a, you talk about a serious scripture. Well, that word he is italicized, so we know what that means. It actually means he probably said, for if ye believe not that I am. Yeah, and and that word is there in italics because it is there because it's demanded by the text. And what this is doing, it's pointing us to something. And we're it's another claim of Christ, and we're going to look at what it points to. And th- there's there's nothing here optional. We're not taking a vote. 
I said, therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And if you don't believe this about Christ, um, you're goner. You know, get ready for hell. Now, let's unpack this most important topic here. Uh, this is one of them heaven and hell things. So let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy 32 and 39. And the text says here, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. And that's what John 8, 24, and it's saying a lot of the same that um, Exodus three fourteen, I am that I am, it shows the immutability of God, and this is wrapping the immutability of God with his omnipotence. I am he that I wound, I make alive. This is the living God in action. I am he. And there's no other God beside me. Uh, over and over, uh, this is emphasized. And let's look at some more texts. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah repeatedly used this. And in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And the I am he, it speaks to the creation. It speaks to the omnipotent, unchanging operations of God. Uh, it's the omnipotent, immutable God in action. Now, this is so Neat. It's neat and it's sad at the same time. This is the scripture that the Jehovah Witnesses use to found their cult. And it's so sad. And of course, they deny the deity of Christ. And the very scripture they used to found their organization totally refutes their fundamental premise. Let's just read Isaiah 43 and verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have shewed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Now, what kind of devilish confusion has to come over the mind of an individual when Jesus said, you have to believe the I am he, and right here it says, thus saith the Lord, that I am God. I mean, the I am he is God. Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am he, you're, you're done. You know, send your saddle home, John, you're a goner. So it's amazing that the foundational text of the Jehovah's Witnesses totally repudiates um, their fun, fundamental deception. And it's so, and, and sad to say, this is why that, any Jehovah Witness that believes what their church teaches, they're going to be damned to hell. 
I have a friend too. I've had conversations and it, it's like there's just something over their eyes. They just they they can't understand what I'm saying. They're so yeah. brainwashed. Yeah. And it seems now that as we preach and we proclaim the doctrine of Christ, and this is a very fundamental statement. This is talking about how to be a witness for the living God, the real ones. And this falls contrary not only to the Jehovah Witnesses, but it also finds, falls contrary to the people in the megachurches and in most of your 501c3 churches that are now teaching a changeable God and not an unchangeable one. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it, it is sad. It is sad, but all we can do is preach the truth and thank God. This is why I look forward to every episode because I know this episode tonight, it's going to rip the blinders off one or more than one person. There's going to be more people coming to the truth. There's going to be more people understanding the real God and his real son, Jesus Christ, that he and the Father are one, that they're immutable, that they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are his witnesses. Amen. Isaiah chapter 48, we'll read verses 12 and 13. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. This is who Jesus is. If you do not believe that I am he. You're going to die in your sins. And by that, um, we don't mean that Jesus and the Father are the same person, but we mean that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. We talked about that a lot in a real good discussion, our very first episode on the attributes of God, God is a spirit. And that was why... That's where you need to begin. But it's I just love the Lord so much. It's um it's just such a blessing to know him and to serve him. And he'll never change and he'll never let you down. Let's look at one more text. Exodus chapter six and verse three. And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. We talked about that, El Shaddai, on our last episode. Yeah. And, but by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them? Now, I love that word Jehovah. And here again, it's so sad. They call themselves the Jehovah Witnesses, and yet they come against this idea that Jesus is the I am he. But let's look at what Brother Brockell said about the name Jehovah. And you can just do a quick uh, lexicon meaning of what the word Jehovah means. And just like all of the names of God, 
revealed as attributes. We've talked about this before. And the I am, that is the immutability of God that's stamped upon the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to make sure that you know you've got the genuine article. This is what Brother Raquel said about the name Jehovah. First, it is conveyed by the name of God, and he's talking about, this is his section on the immutability of God. First, it is conveyed by the name of God, Jehovah, which means eternal being. By means of this name, God shows himself to be immutable. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them, Exodus 6.3. That is, I have made a promise to them concerning Canaan, which, however, I have not fulfilled in their time and have not shown to them in very deed that I am immutable, but I will now show to you that I am Jehovah, the immutable God, by fulfilling my promise to you, their seed. And the name Jehovah, it gives us that covenant promise that he never changes and the promises he makes, they can never change. And this is why that covenant people can pray the word of God and we can believe him for covenant blessings because he never changes. With all of my heart.